John chapter 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch <laughs> that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. These are the words of the Lord to us today. Let's pray together. Father, as we've read John 15, together as a church family, we would pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would instruct us, that you would lead us into the truth of who you are and the truth of who we are in relation to you. Lord, there are profound truths in this text about what it means to have a relationship with God and about what it means to grow spiritually and bear much fruit. And so, Lord, if we hope to be women and men who glorify you and who bear great fruit, we need to understand a passage like this, and we know we can only do so with your help. So we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would illuminate this text to our minds and our hearts, that you would free us from distractions and the cares of this life, so that during this time we can really focus in and hear from you as you speak to us in your holy word. So bless us in our time together. Minister to us, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. So one of the trends in America over the last several decades has been a declining interest in organized religion while at the same time an increased interest in spirituality. See, people in our society are fascinated by spiritual experience. The only caveat is that they want it on their own terms, and they want it to be not guided from an outside source, at least an outside source that looks and feels and smells anything like Christianity. Because in our culture, we believe that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. And so oftentimes when you talk to people, you'll hear them say things like this. They'll say, well, I'm, I'm not religious, but I am a very spiritual person. 
And so there's this, again, this desire to disassociate yourself with religion, but be perceived as a very spiritual person. Now, significantly, Christianity does not dismiss the spiritual desires of people. Our innate desire to have contact with something transcendent, what I mean by transcendent is something that is bigger and beyond ourselves, is perfectly consistent with the Christian worldview. Those desires, even if they're desires for false gods or mother nature or even aliens, to be quite honest with you, are evidence of our creation in the image and likeness of God. As beings created in God's image, the greatest hope of the human soul is to be united with the the divine. Let me say that again. As beings created in God's image, the greatest hope of the human soul is to be united with the divine. Unfortunately, as sin entered the world, our union with the divine was severed and we are incapable of mending it back together on our own. Apart from God reaching out to us, we will all go astray in our attempts to relate to him. In fact, this explains why idolatry is such a pervasive sin in the world, and it always has been. We are all worshipers. There are no exceptions. But apart from divine guidance, we end up worshiping the wrong things. So a desire for spirituality is not bad. In fact, it's a good desire. But just like a child's desire for food is good, but it needs to be directed away from sweets into a healthier diet, our desires for spirituality need guidance too. Unfortunately, this kind of thinking that characterizes our, our society that I'm describing has made inroads into the church as well. Many professing Christians today desire to be spiritual people and to have a relationship with God, but they want that relationship with him on their own terms. They aren't committed to any particular church, and they don't feel like they need the church to have a relationship with God. They hardly read the scriptures. They pray only when they're in need of something. They have no real accountability. They don't seek out mentors in the church. They seldom receive communion. They hardly give financially to the work of the ministry. And when they hear folks in the church tell them that these things matter, their response is something along the lines of, okay, boomer. Nobody gets that? Nobody like, nobody's heard that? Okay, boomer? Wow, hold on. If we had a second service, I'd just like scratch that totally out of my notes. Thank God we don't have a second service. I don't have to live that painful moment again. Look up OK Boomer. There's this thing called Google, too, I should inform all of you. You can just like look things up there. Here's the sad irony, though. Historically, Christians have known that those specific things that I was just talking about, they're known as the spiritual disciplines. That those are the things that we can do to foster our relationship with the Lord and grow spiritually. Things like going to church, things like reading and meditating on scripture, things like cultivating a prayer life, things like solitude and silence and receiving the Lord's Supper. And these are the spiritual disciplines. And for 2,000 years, believers have known that those are the ways, those are the means of growing spiritually. So this morning, I want us to talk for a little bit about the spiritual disciplines. Again, next week, we're going to start an expositional study of Ecclesiastes, but this week, we're going to pause, and we're going to reflect on this important topic, because as I just said, more and more Christians seem to believe that they really don't matter that much, 
But also with the start of a new year, many Christians who do see the value of the spiritual disciplines and do know that these things are important are committing or recommitting themselves to specific practices. Maybe for you, it's you're committing this year to a specific Bible reading plan. Or maybe you this year have decided we're going to commit ourselves to a local church. Or maybe it's joining a community group or maybe it's deepening your prayer life. So I believe that this topic is very relevant for us this morning. Now, I want to say this, that we're not going to focus together today on any specific spiritual disciplines. So this is not a message on Bible reading or a message on prayer or silence and solitude. Instead, what I hope to do this morning is lay a foundation for thinking about spiritual disciplines and spiritual growth in general. Because here's the truth. If you start out on the wrong path, It doesn't matter where you go from there, you're always going to end up in the wrong place. So foundations really matter. We have to be thinking properly about the spiritual disciplines. We have to be pointed in the right direction if we hope to grow in grace. Now, with that being said, one of the problems with the spiritual disciplines is that it can come across to some people like it's a spiritual to-do list that we just need to kind of like check the boxes on. And once you accomplish the to-do list, then poof, you're holy. So in other words, things like Bible study, prayer, fasting, meditation, etc., they're all just the boxes on the checklist. And our goal, as some people see spiritual disciplines, is to get really good at just checking all the boxes. And if I can do that, and I can be really good at doing all these things, then I'm going to automatically become like Jesus. In other words, the spiritual disciplines can quickly, if we're not careful, and if we're not grounding this in the right foundation, they can very quickly become a performance thing. So then people think, well, if I want to grow, I just need to get my reps in, right? I just need to read enough scripture. I just need to make sure that I pray at all the appointed prayer times. I need to make sure that I'm doing all these things. Now, getting your reps in might proved to work for physical fitness. In fact, it will, right? All you need to do is just get really good at being really disciplined and showing up and doing all your reps, and you're going to see results. You're going to get physically strong. But that doesn't hold true when we talk about spiritual fitness or spiritual growth. Why is that? Well, because the key to spiritual growth is that word spiritual. There's a spiritual dynamic at play here. Spiritual growth comes from the Holy Spirit. In Christianity, we're not talking about moral reform, just trying to become good people. We're not talking about self-help, becoming the best you you can be through a few quick tricks and methods. What we're talking about in Christianity is we're talking about formation in the presence of God. We're talking about relational transformation. That what Christianity is offering to the world is a way in which you can actually be in relationship with your God. And because you're in him and he is in you, you're destined to change. You're going to become like him. He's going to mold you and shape you into his image. So the first thing to say is that the spiritual disciplines themselves cannot make you holy. They cannot make you godly. Only God, who is himself holy, 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 can make you holy. That's where the change comes from. It's from the Lord. 
And this is huge. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? This is massive. This is so important for us to understand. Let me say it to you this way. Bible reading doesn't make you holy. Did you know many atheists read the Bible? Prayer does not make you holy. Almost all people universally pray. Fasting does not make you Christ-like. Again, let me repeat, only God can make you holy. We need to be in his presence, engaging with him, if we hope to become like him. Some of you have got very skeptical looks on your face. So let me give you a Bible verse. That's always a good place to go if you're a preacher. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is one of the most significant texts when we think about spiritual formation or growth in godliness. Here the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're going to leave that verse up for a moment. Notice that we are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Jesus, as we behold his glory. In other words, the way that you and I are transformed, the way that we become Christ-like, is by being in the presence of the Lord, being able to behold his glory and see him for who he actually is. We need to be with him if we hope to become like him. And notice at the end of that verse, this transformation that Paul's talking about comes from the Lord. That's how we grow. That's how we become like Christ, is he does the work in us. Or consider the text that we read, that Vanessa read for us a few moments ago in John chapter 15. That is the point that Jesus is making here. Consider verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. So Jesus is saying, you need to be in me and I need to be in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So notice in the teaching in John 15, what Jesus is communicating is that growth comes from abiding. Just as the branches cannot bear fruit unless they're attached to the vine, unless they're actually engrafted into the vine, neither can you and I hope to bear any fruit that is honoring to God and pleasing God unless we are plugged into the vine who is Jesus Christ. We have to actually be in relationship with him. The Bible will call this union with Christ. So that through faith we are in him and he is now in us via his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So all this is to say that spiritual growth is more about participation in the divine life than imitation of the divine life. Let me say that one more time. Spiritual growth is more about participation in the divine life than imitation of the divine life. See, the key is not some magical practices and rituals. It's entering into the presence of God the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, and being changed by Him. Now, here's why this is so important. If the disciplines 
become a performance thing, if the, if the spiritual disciplines become this checklist of to-dos that I need to accomplish because if I can check all the boxes, I can be righteous, or even worse, if I can check all the boxes, God's going to be happy with me, one of two things is going to happen, and they're both devastating. The first is this. The disciplines can lead to guilt and discouragement. The spiritual disciplines, the things that are meant to be life-giving, and we're going to talk about how in a minute, they're meant to be life-giving, can actually produce guilt and discouragement. How does this happen? Well, this happens for the person who is really bad at the spiritual disciplines, the person who struggles with them, the person who's like, I couldn't stick to a Bible reading plan if you paid me a million dollars. The person who's like, I haven't prayed in two days. The person who's like, I'm really struggling to be disciplined and to do these things. Can anybody relate to that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know at seasons of my life, I've related to that. But what happens is if you are really bad at the disciplines, it can create guilt and incredible discouragement. And here's what happens with guilt. Guilt oftentimes leads us away from the presence of God. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had union with God. They had no sin in the garden. It was perfect. It was paradise. It was a garden called delight. That's what Eden means. Everything was awesome. And then sin enters the equation and with sin, guilt. And what do they do? Instead of running to God who could heal them, deliver them, save them, free them from their sin... They do what all of us as children of Adam do. They decided we're going to go hide from God. We're going to go cover our sin. We're going to posture before the Lord. We're going to go fix it on our own. Which is the exact opposite of how we grow spiritually. But this becomes the problem. If you're failing at the spiritual disciplines, and again, if you're understanding it from a framework of performance, I've got to do this if I'm going to be godly. If I ever want to be like her, I've got to get better at this and better at this. If that's the way you're going at it and you're struggling and you're messing up, you're going to feel guilty and that guilt is going to drive you away from God to go fix it on your own, which will fail. Only God makes you holy. Only God can make you righteous. Only God can help you grow in spiritual growth. So the very thing you need is the thing you flee. Listen, we don't do the spiritual disciplines to get godly. We do them to get God. And the byproduct of having God, the byproduct of constantly being in his presence is you will become like him. And godliness or righteousness is the byproduct of abiding, of knowing, of being in his presence. The second thing that's devastating that can happen with the spiritual disciplines, if they're a performance thing, is that they can lead to pride and self-righteousness. So whereas guilt and discouragement um, are the characteristics of the person who's kind of bad or spotty at the spiritual disciplines, problem number two, pride and self-righteousness, applies to the person who's really good at the spiritual disciplines. This is a temptation. Oftentimes, if you're really good at the spiritual disciplines, again, it can produce these things, pride and self-righteousness, which is the exact opposite of godliness. So this believer sometimes will, whether it's conscious or subconscious, say, man, look at how good I am at doing this. I mean, I read, I read 
my Bible for two hours every day and I pray for three hours and I go to church every service that it's offered and I fast twice a week and they're looking at the disciplines as evidence of their godliness. And do you know who that sounds an awful lot like? I'll give you a hint. The answer is not Jesus. Sounds like the Pharisees. Sounds a lot like the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, I'll put it on the screen for you, but you're going to want to like vomit in your mouth as we read this one. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. So imagine the, the scene. They're in the temple, modern equivalent. They're standing in church, right, with, with God's people. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus is teaching this parable to help us to see that the Pharisee, although he was really good at the disciplines, really good at the right outward spiritual behaviors, that he was far from the Lord. And this tax collector, who was a notoriously bad guy actually, but whose heart was contrite and humble and broken before the Lord, Jesus said, that's the guy who gets God's mercy. If that parable teaches us anything, it teaches us that the spiritual disciplines or the, the outward actions themselves do not equal godliness. The Pharisees were far from God. You can do all of these disciplines, and yet your heart can be far from God. I've read chapters of the Bible without paying attention to a single word. I spent 30 minutes or an hour sometimes in prayer that amounted to nothing more than an opportunity to worry. I've gone to church as an opportunity to meet girls. Not recently, to be clear. <laughs> Happily married for 10 years, everybody. Or think about the Corinthian church. The Corinthians took communion, very spiritual act, took communion to fill their stomachs and get drunk. Some people only fast to lose weight. So the disciplines themselves do not equal godliness. Okay, if the disciplines don't make us godly, they don't make us holy, then what is their role? Let me introduce a different phrase because I think it's helpful. Um, I've, I've found it helpful in my own journey with the Lord to not talk about the spiritual disciplines with that title, but instead to label the spiritual disciplines rhythms of grace. Not an original idea to my own, but when I came across that phrase, I thought, that's so helpful, rhythms of grace. Because what that phraseology communicates to us is the idea that what we're talking about when we're talking about the disciplines is that these things are really more of patterns that you place in your life in an effort to receive and experience the grace of God, in an effort to engage with Almighty God. So they're, again, they're, they're kind of like patterns, or you could say habits, or rhythms that you're setting up in your life as, in, as ways of engaging with God. Historically, Christians have learned that these disciplines, and there are many of them, are the ordinary means that God has graciously given to us to experience his presence and his grace. So maybe think of them this way. The, the spiritual disciplines are like channels that you can tap into to place yourself in the way of God's blessings and God's presence. Again, they're like channels that you can tap into to place yourself in the way of God's presence and blessings. Consider, if you would, the woman who had the issue of the flow of blood for 12 years. This woman, because of this constant bleeding, would have been uh, perpetually unclean 
in Hebrew culture. So this woman was alienated from society for 12 years. And this was, of course, unbelievably painful for her, being relationally alienated from everybody, not being able to engage herself in the spiritual life of her community. She was just cut off from people. Because if a woman had an issue of blood, she was unclean in this culture. So this woman had taken all the money that she had had. She had pretty substantial resources. She used all of her money for doctors and physicians, and nobody could help her. And she was desperate. Now, this woman heard that Jesus was coming through her town. And so she made a decision that I am going to basically do the taboo. I am going to go out there. Even though I'm not supposed to be around people, I'm going to go out into the throngs of people that are there, and I'm going to do everything in my power to get in the presence of Jesus. Don't know if I'm going to see him, don't know if I'm going to touch him, don't know if he's going to heal me, but I believe if I can get close to him, if I can touch the hem of his garment even, I believe there's a shot that God will heal me. And so she did. And she went out there, and she pushed her way through the crowds, and the disciples are there, and everybody's there, and everybody's trying to touch Jesus, and this poor woman who had been alienated and been suffering for over a decade touches the hem of his garment and immediately power goes out from Jesus and she's healed and Jesus affirms her in front of this community who had rejected her for 12 years and affirms her that she's healed which means that she's clean which means that she can be received which means she has a second shot at life think about the story This woman could not force or manipulate Jesus into touching her, healing her, or blessing her. But what she could do is she could say, you know what, I'm going to put myself in his presence. And when she did, Jesus, in his grace, in his love, in his compassion, touches this woman, meets her in her need, and her story is forever changed. I would submit to you, family, that this is a great way to look at the spiritual disciplines. They are the places that God is pleased to meet with us and to minister to us. As we create these rhythms or these patterns in our lives, we'll find that we experience ongoing grace and blessing from the presence of the Lord. Think about Sabbath rest as an example of a spiritual discipline. It's an example, though, that's widely neglected in most evangelical circles today. But the practice of Sabbath rest is rooted in creation, And the idea is that one day out of every seven, you're going to rest, recharge your batteries, you're going to worship the Lord, reorient your heart with him, and you're going to demonstrate intentional gratitude for all the things that God has done for you in your life. What does that do? Well, it reprograms your heart, your mind, and your soul every single week, and it gives you a weekly opportunity to rest in God's presence thanking him for all the wonderful things he's done for you, and trusting him to provide for you in the future. What a sanctifying habit. If you were to do that every seventh day, year after year, year after year, sitting in his presence, allowing God to minister to you, allowing him to sanctify you. So the way to spiritual growth in Christianity is not to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not about getting it all together. It's not about learning to be good. Mormons are very good people. They're also not Christians. The disciplines are not a checklist that we work through to curry God's favor or to make ourselves holy. They are habits that we form to help us practice the presence of God. Spiritual growth is about participating in the divine life and being changed as a result. Being in the presence of God 
and being transformed by him. And the spiritual disciplines are the means that God has given to us to meet with and encounter him. Therefore, the purpose of the disciplines is creating healthy rhythms in our life where we might encounter the living God and be changed by him. In closing, if it's true that the key to spiritual growth is participation in the divine life, then I think the key question becomes, how do we enter into that life? How do we access God's presence in the first place? Well, the answer we see in Scripture is union with Christ. Earlier I mentioned that we enter into the presence of God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. What you need to experience God's presence and therefore experience spiritual growth is you need to be one with him. You need to be in Christ as Christ is in you. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. Here Paul is sort of like backing up the dump truck of God's blessings and just dumping them on the church. But notice that as he does, he explains all the amazing blessings that we have as Christians He's going to locate, I want you to see this in this text, he's going to locate all of those blessings in Christ. So if you want them, you've got to be in Christ. Here's Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Then in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In other words, in Christ, we have forgiveness and we have intimacy with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we are able to experience all of God's blessings. So how can we be united to Christ? How can we share in his death, which removed our sins, and share in his resurrection, which gives us newness of life? How do we actually join to him or be united to him? By faith. It's by receiving him by faith. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, that's faith talk, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Or consider Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Finally, consider Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The way that we become one with Christ, and therefore have a relationship with God, and therefore begin to grow spiritually, is through faith. It's by trusting in Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the grave, and trusting in him alone to be our Savior and our Lord. And when we receive him by faith, he receives us into his very life. And that's why there is so much language in Scripture, like John 15, that we began with today. 
that speaks of the, the intimacy and the oneness that we now have in him by faith. And if you've joined us this morning and you've not yet received Christ by faith, my question to you would be, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? All of your spiritual desires and all of your spiritual hopes find their fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. What you need to do is turn from anything else that you've looked to in your life thinking that this is going to be it. This is going to be the answer. This is going to make me into the person that I want to be. This is going to help me to be spiritual. Turn from those things and instead receive Jesus Christ by faith. And as you do, you'll receive his forgiveness for your sins and you'll receive a relationship with your Father in heaven where you have one with his Son And because you're joined to Christ by faith, you yourself become a child of God and he is your father and he loves you and he lavishes his good gifts on you for time and eternity. Why would you reject that? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the the gospel. The storyline of scripture that you created us as people in your own image with the capacity to know you and to enjoy you forever. But of course, all of us, even like our first parents, have sinned against you and we've severed that union. We've broken that relationship with you. But you are such a good God, such a gracious and loving God that you would not leave us in that place. But instead, you've pursued us And of course, the ultimate picture of that pursuit, the climax of the story, is sending your own son in the likeness of man. He became a man. He dwelt among us. And he lived a righteous life, fully God and fully man. He did everything right. Everywhere that we have failed, he succeeded. And after doing so, he willingly offered his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins where he bore our punishment, where he removed the guilt and the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And three days later, he rose again, triumphing over both sin and grave, and he's alive forevermore, offering eternal life and union with him to all who would receive him by faith. What an amazing story. And Lord, I pray for us as a church family that we would get great at the spiritual disciplines, that we would be committed to our church, that we would be devoted to your word, that we would be constant in prayer, but not so that we can just check off the boxes. Rather, that we would get great at these things because our hearts desire to be great at being in your presence. That because we love you, since we've received your love, we would want to be present with you. And we would look at all of these things as opportunities, as channels that you have given to us where we might receive your grace and we would come eagerly to these things day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, excited to once again relate with you. And Lord, as we do, I pray that we would constantly be changing and be conforming into the image of Christ and that we would see that in one another, that there is so much spiritual growth happening in this church. And Lord, lastly, we would pray that as we continue to look more and more like Jesus, that the effect of that on all of our non-believing neighbors and friends and family members 
would be that they would be attracted to you through us, even as they were attracted to you, Jesus, as you walked this earth. Your love and your compassion, your wisdom, your grace. And that through our witness, they might be led to you so that they themselves can be brought into the family of God. So Lord, do these things in our midst, we pray, for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, family, let's stand to our feet and let's conclude with a song of praise.